I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm here with special guest Dr. Monica Hannon, who was my OBGYN for my birth, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have her here. And we have Esther Gallagher in the room as well. Hello. Hi. Hello. Just as a quick reminder, I wanted to let everyone know that you can go to the fourthtrimesterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter. And we would also like to thank all of our sponsors and patrons. If you are interested in sponsoring our podcast, please go to patreon.com and search for fourth trimester. Thank you so much again for joining our program today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Could you start off telling us a little bit about what got you interested in this line of work and how you became doing what you're doing? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and just to give a little bit of context for people who are listening in, um, I'm actually in a small practice uh, and I practice with my father, who is also an OBGYN physician, and we practice together. Uh, I joined him in practice about two and a half years ago now. And um, I remember being a, a, a kid and hearing him clomping down the stairs in the middle of the night, going running off to deliver a baby. And for most of my uh, at least for my early life, I always thought I would never do that. <laughs> um, and But I really um, was interested in the sciences. I really uh, enjoyed, I'm a people person. I like talking to people and helping people and um, sort of went the public health route for a while and then realized uh, medicine was my calling. And in medical school, I was one of those people that um, saved my OBGYN rotation to the very last because I wanted to try everything else first. And I realized that OBGYN really has the mix I'm looking for of a uh, little bit of procedure, a little bit of office work, of course, doing deliveries, which is one of the things we're talking about here today. And, um, and also having the opportunity to work with patients over a long period of time and have that continuity of care. Um, some of the patients in our practice, at least maybe not for me, since I'm a little bit younger, but um, for my father, he's seen patients for, you know, 20, 30 years that he's delivered all their kids and then their uh, surgeries is needed or help them with their incontinence or, you know, things that come up later in life. And so I think that that's really a, probably the most rewarding part of my job is is having that pers- people interaction and um, and helping people over their lifetime as different issues come up. And you haven't always practiced in San Francisco, is that right? Correct. Um, I, I'm in private practice here, but um, I did all of my training on the East Coast in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and I had a very different population at that time in my training. And um, one, because it's on the East Coast, and two, because there were just different, uh, different levels of care out there. And I had the opportunity to work at three different hospitals, so I had an opportunity to work with a a wide variety of people in the greater Washington, D.C. area. And now I'm going to ask you one of my favorite questions, which I did ask you when you were my doctor and we were first getting to know each other. But I was curious to know how many births you have attended. It's a good question. And I haven't been keeping track, to be honest (laughs) with you. Um, 
I would say it's probably in the range of over, I mean, at this point, it for sure is over 1,500. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly how many, though. I haven't been keeping track. I, I bring that up only because I want to tell you once again that I'm in awe of how many births you have seen, having participated in one and knowing what an amazing experience that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think to be a part of that, it's, it must just feel incredible. I think the really beautiful thing about birth is that every delivery is different. And if it were my father sitting here and answering your questions rather than me, he would say the same thing that when we go into a delivery, every experience is different. And, um, it's, it's just, it's amazing. That's, I don't have any other word for it. It's amazing to be part of that experience. And sometimes it's difficult if it's a difficult labor or a difficult birth. Um, sometimes the, Outcomes aren't what we want uh, following the birth. Um, you know, sometimes things happen that we can't anticipate or expect, but um, but every time it's different. And uh, that's one of the exciting things about my field. Yeah. And what I like about that is that you're saying it's like every birth is different and unique. And I think there's a temptation to want to believe that, oh, if I do all of these things or if I follow all of these rules, then things are going to go exactly the way I want And Esther you were the first person to introduce me to the the alternative uh, line of thinking, which is that open your mind to the possibilities of, of kind of like anything is possible with this whole process. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, you're confirming that yeah. it's yeah. all different. I think it's great. Um, I, I really encourage patients to think about what they want their labor to be like, what they envision for their delivery. If there's, um, and as you know, we, we kind of go over birth plans. We go over what kinds of things you would like to have happen. But I also caution my patients that, um, just like Esther mentioned to you as well, it's, it's really important to keep an open mind and to be flexible because things kind of happen on a whim. You know, labor and delivery is unpredictable. And sometimes um, a labor is really long and uh, sometimes it's a really quick labor. Sometimes, I mean, I've delivered patients in cars. I mean, you know, sometimes things happen that you don't expect. And uh, being, being in a position or a place in your mind where you have an idea of how you would like things to go, but being open to if something doesn't go that way, you won't feel disappointed or devastated. Um, that's really important to me too. And so that's why when we're talking about labor, when we're talking about delivery, I oftentimes remind patients of that as well, um, that the people who are most satisfied with their delivery experience are the ones who go in with an open mind and are really excited just to meet their baby. And we'll do everything we can to facilitate uh, a safe and healthy birth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of the typical things that happen between that birth and six week period mm-hmm. for women who you do see? Yeah. So, um, and I think, uh, it sort of also depends on what happened leading up to the, to the birth and what kind of delivery a patient had. Uh, because, uh, as you might expect, somebody who had a cesarean delivery might have a different set of issues in terms of recovery time than somebody who had a vaginal birth. I feel that, um, one of the most common things that I, I hear from patients and I appreciate when patients reach out to me about this is when they're having difficulty with mood. Uh, after birth. And I don't think that that's necessarily uh, a common thing that people complain about to their doctors or talk to their doctors about, which I hope is starting to change as we're 
promoting more awareness of the baby blues and postpartum depression and changes in mood and things that can happen after the birth. One of my goals and one of the things that I think about as a woman is getting close to their delivery date is really, and also after the birth, when we're talking in the hospital, is making sure that people know about what to anticipate, that there's um, a lot of, particularly in the first two weeks, a lot of mood changes that happen. And some of those are hormonal. And some of those are legitimately that you're up with a baby every two to three hours. And that is really taxing on both your body and your mind and your partner's body and mind in some ways. Um, and so I feel that um, because I have those conversations with a lot of my patients, I feel that they're more open and um, uh, quicker to reach out to me if they're having difficulty. I would say that's probably the number one reason why people contact me in that six-week period, and I'm very happy that they do, um, because there are things we can do to help. Um, the second thing I would say is breastfeeding, and that's maybe even, that may even be number one, but they're probably pretty even. Um, breastfeeding difficulties, um, there's so many challenges that can come up when somebody's trying to breastfeed their baby, and it's a really important part of, um, for most women and they're looking forward to it throughout the entire pregnancy and planning for it and taking classes. And then they have the baby and the baby won't latch or, um, the baby is when the baby's breastfeeding, their nipples are too sore and patients feel like they can't continue or, um, they have a low milk supply, or there's a million and one different challenges that women face in terms of nursing. Um, I, I also, my own personal belief is that I feel there's a lot of pressure on women to breastfeed. I think it's wonderful. It's great. Um, I really, really encourage patients to do whatever they can to breastfeed their babies. But I also feel like it can kind of be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you you want the baby to get that benefit and mom of breastfeeding for both uh, bonding and for health reasons. But if a patient has done everything in her power to be able to breastfeed and hasn't been successful because of those external pressures and sort of that are either placed by, I don't know, the media, society, sometimes by patients' families or themselves, um, they feel like a failure if they can't breastfeed their baby or if they can't make it to the six months or the year that they were planning to breastfeed their baby. And I think that that's um, for patients who are having a really hard time, um, that's really discouraging. And it's um, it's not a, a healthy place to be for those patients. And I see some of them in my office and we work together and we work in concert with lactation specialists to try to um, uh, help and facilitate. But at the end of the day, you know, people have to remember, you're only human, you can only do so much. And there are some challenges that can't be overcome. Um, but the important thing is that not so much whether or not you succeeded in a vaginal birth, or whether or not you succeeded in having an unmedicated vaginal birth, or whether or not you succeeded in breastfeeding for the whole year that you were anticipating, but more of that you did everything in your power to try to, to do what was best for you and for your baby. That's the most important thing at the end of the day. Yeah. It's so much work. It's good to acknowledge mm -hmm. that Esther. I mean, you see this firsthand because you're at home with new mamas and, mm -hmm. and seeing both of these issues. Would you like, would these be at the top of your list? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the first two weeks, that's what we're talking about. A mom who needs to heal and recover, establish a breastfeeding relationship, whatever that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, because the other thing about all of that is that um, one's ideas about what a breastfeeding relationship would look like and what they're going to actually experience as their own breastfeeding relationship to their child may be very different. Correct. But it may still be a breastfeeding relationship. And I think sometimes just having that person there who's helping you feel well-resourced and remind you to just get to know what's actually happening rather than projecting your idea of what you wanted to happen yes. uh, can be very um, helpful. So, yeah, and, and just helping parents feel resourced, like, okay, I'm not falling off the cliff because I'm too hungry. I'm not falling off the cliff because I haven't slept enough. I'm not, you know, like how do we help parents just do, you know, address their own basic human needs vis-a-vis a newborn baby's basic human needs um, in the first weeks of recovery and, and all of that is pretty important. Mm-hmm. And it's all happening by the time they're six weeks. I, mean, I think often, you know, um, all of these things can take six weeks, right? The things they thought would be automatic aren't. They take six weeks. And maybe sometime around six weeks, they start to say, okay, I'm getting the hang of this. <laughs> you know, it was really challenging, but now we're somewhere that's starting to feel comfortable. Yeah. I will just piggyback on that and say, just because and I tell patients it's just because something is natural. Breastfeeding is 100% natural, but that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean that it works well for everybody. Sometimes patients have to really work hard to breastfeed their baby. Some some other patients, the baby latches right away, and it's like they've always done that their whole life, and there's no problem, but you have everything in between. Um, and I would say I would also agree with the the kind of reassurance piece I recently uh, delivered a baby uh, last month and a patient called me probably about the two or three week mark and she felt like she was really struggling. And um, I think there's a lot of things that go through individual patients' mind, um, particularly if somebody uh, tried really hard to get pregnant and then they have this you know, really fussy screaming baby and they're feeling like they're overwhelmed and they feel, I, I think these women, they feel sometimes guilty about the fact that they're having thoughts about, oh my gosh, this is too hard after trying so hard to get pregnant and wanting this for so long and really looking forward to the birth. And um, so there's a lot of conflicting emotions that happen after delivery. And, and of course, I can say at, at least as good as anybody who is um, who has has a newborn baby at home, uh, the hours that OBGYN keep sometimes, I know what it's like to be up for many hours at a time and what kinds of uh, feelings that can induce or how, how you relate to people changes sometimes after you've been up for a long time <laughs> or not getting enough sleep. So um, I can certainly relate to that. Um, I really feel that sometimes patients just need reassurance that this is going to get better that you're going to find your routine, that unpredictability is part of the challenges of parenthood, but it's also one of the joys of parenthood. And um, that if 
And then, of course, if patients are really in a dark place that they need some extra help, of course, that we're here to support and help them and that they can always call me. Um, I will say that the patient I was uh, originally talking about, um, just we had a conversation and she felt better at the end of our conversation. And I reassured her and told her if you're feeling like the walls are crumbling down and things really aren't going well, please just come in and see me. And I saw her a few weeks later at her regular postpartum visit and she was doing much better. Just just having somebody that she knows is there that she can fall back on for support or just to listen to her if she has a, an issue is really, really helpful, I think. Yeah. I think in a culture where we're, you know, each pregnant person is, I've said this before, kind of reinventing the wheel because we don't live in a culture that's just doing all of this together every day. And so you get to be, you know, 35 years old and you've never been around people with babies, <laughs> you know? So it is all new and it can feel very, very lonely. Um, so yeah, being able to touch base with somebody and just say, wow, this is really rough and have them say, yep. And it's also normal what you're feeling. And you know, here we are. <laughs> you need us. That's huge. Yeah. It's huge for the clients. Yeah. It really isn't about just being tough and thinking, oh, I, I just have to make it. My appointment's a few weeks out. I just have to be tough and weather through it. What would you say are some of the signs that you would ask a patient to contact you? For sure. We always, I think we spend a lot of time talking or at least um, in the hospital upon discharge, talking about if you have abnormal bleeding, um, where the bleeding gets heavier or brisk after the birth, that would be definitely a time to contact your doctor and check in, um, you know, make sure that everything is okay. Um, most women, especially after their first birth, have stitches. So if all of a sudden things feel like they're um, either in the cesarean or a vaginal birth, um, if things are getting more painful as opposed to better, that would be definitely a time to check in and see if there's something going on. Um for sure, mood things, if, you know, it's expected that within the, within the first two weeks or so after the birth that um, there's a lot of mood lability. And, um, and part of, again, part of that is hormones. And part of that is figuring out what to do with this new baby that you just brought home and uh, working out a schedule for feeding and sleeping and trying to do uh, meet your baby's needs. Um and I would say certainly if somebody starts feeling like um, they're having difficulty caring for their baby because they're feeling so down, or if they are feeling that they aren't, um, they aren't meeting, I don't want to say meeting their own needs because no new mom is meeting their own needs. I can guarantee that. But um, if they're in a place where they really feel like they're struggling and um, are feeling down uh, down about that, that they can't um, um, move forward or um, find, find a place where they're uh, having that help, building that bonding relationship with their baby or, or having, sometimes people have um, partner disputes or things after the birth too. There's a lot of uh, interrelational tip things that happen between partners after that we bring home a new baby. Um, well, so I was just thinking 
asking about that, yeah. Monica, and, and wanting to mention or ask, you know, one of the highest risk times in a woman's life mm-hmm. for partner violence is during the postpartum recovery period. Yes, that's the, true. The highest rate of homicide yes. in America yeah. is amongst postpartum women. Yeah. 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 So not to scare people, but, you know, yeah. partners can also suffer hormonally based mood disorder. Mm-hmm. So it's not always the mom who's Correct. in a dark, dark, dark place. Right. Um, so I, yeah, you know, and it's, I think, you know, that, that you would tell your clients, Hey, you know, it's one thing to be a little bit roller coaster. Mm-hmm. That's pretty normal. You go down, but you come back up and then you go down, you come back up and you're all over the map and you're crying when you're happy and you're <laughs> laughing when you're sad. Mm-hmm. That's all pretty normal in the first six weeks. But if you go down and you can't get back up, right. You know, right. Um, exactly. Or if your partner seems to be mm-hmm. heading down and can't yeah. ride yeah. the waves. Um, I've also noticed what sometimes happens after uh, a new baby is brought into the house um, is that there sometimes partners work really well together and support each other and and you know are helpful in terms of uh, caring for the new baby and caring for each other's needs um, and sometimes partners for whatever reason aren't working that well together. And I, I see more of that actually and hear more about that at the either at their six week visit or before then. Um, and it usually manifests itself as um, a patient coming in confiding in me that their partner is sleeping in a different room, um, that they are having a hard time. And when we get into the nitty gritty of what exactly that means for that patient, it may be, no, I'm breastfeeding okay, um, but um, we're sleeping in separate rooms and I just feel like I'm by myself all the time. And I would say that's the most common thing that people complain about. Um, it's sort of a proxy to postpartum depression. It's it's not so much, um, it, it's partially that uh, patients get really isolated after the birth if they don't have good support. Uh, from the partners or from extended family or friends or whomever they rely on for support. Um, I, I one time had a patient also tell me that she, I asked her, well, have you talked with your husband about these issues or about how you're feeling? Or, And she told me, no, I don't want to, you know, worry him or bother him because he has to go to work in the morning. And so there's a kind of a disconnect between in communication and trying to, um, it's hard to blame the partner in that particular instance because that per- person may not really realize that his wife is having a hard time because they haven't been communicating well. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was my They're first. So bifurcated yes. in their ideas about who does what. Yes. That mm-hmm. one person is suffering. Right. Right. The other person doesn't know it. Doesn't know. Yes. Yeah. But. I think I I often, you know, I mean, these days, uh, often my clients are people who both have time off from work. They're both anticipating going back to work, which can often manifest in a kind of depression, Mm -hmm. like they're already anticipating it and leaving their new baby and they're sad about it before they even have to go. Um, but aside, aside from that fact, um, 
uh, you know, when I know that partners are going to be together and having time together in the first two to six weeks, sometimes it's a hard sell. But what I try to help the partner understand is that it's better for the parents to be in sync with the baby. So if the baby's eating, then the partner can feed mom and themselves, right? Because mom needs to eat all the time. She's going to really need all those good nourishing calories. Um, and that's going to help both of them sleep when the baby actually does sleep. And those sleeps, however brief, are very restorative when you're in the postpartum recovery period. You just can't bank on three hours of napping and think you're going to make it through this. But babies sleep upwards of 12 hours. So if you're getting each of those little naps throughout the 24-hour cycle, you're going to feel pretty good for a short period. And then you'll start to flag and you need to nap again when the baby naps. The problem with a partner sleeping separately is they get eight hours, they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and they don't understand why mom feels crappy. Mm -hmm. You know, they can't relate to why she wouldn't just take off on a hike with them or go out and do errands with them or any number of things that they think ought to be happening. And so, you know, I, I have to explain this again and again and again, like, no, those first two weeks are for the two of you to really be present for each other and baby. Uh, so that then when you do have to start to do the things like head back to work, you actually know what her day is like. You know, you don't get home from work and wonder what she's been doing all day and why she's knackered. <laughs> um, and I think this, when I can get, you know, my clients to recognize this way of being with babies, they really can appreciate like what this project of motherhood is and how much it requires mm -hmm. um, on another level. Yeah. But it's not easy sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it's interesting to me, especially with clients who already come into parenthood with mental illness that they're medicated for. It's like their sleep is just crazy already. Mm -hmm. And no wonder they're medicated, mm -hmm. right? And now they're throwing a baby in the mix. Mm -hmm. And I can't get them to see how important it is to sleep mm -hmm. in a way that's appropriate to having a new baby. Oh, well, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's rough. Mm -hmm. Well, the expectation of sleeping through the night, I mean, we have <clears throat> a couple of episodes dedicated to sleep and newborn sleep. Um, so anyone who's interested in that, check those out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, babies, babies don't sleep through the night. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't, don't think that that, that you'll sleep train and then that will magically happen. Babies don't, don't do that. I, I would throw in one other thought I had too. Um, what particularly, and this is the time that I usually bring this up is their six week postpartum uh, period because in part because that's when I see patients in the office if they're not having any issues but also it's that point where a lot of uh, parents uh, have started to get their groove they've started to figure out 
you know, they're feeling more confident and comfortable about their baby's routines and how to meet their baby's needs. Um, but I, I take that opportunity at the six week postpartum visit to make sure that patients know that visit is for them. Their babies are always welcome. Their family is always welcome. I love to see the babies I deliver and take pictures and do whatever. Uh, but that visit is really to check on mom and see how mom is doing. And you really realize at that visit that most moms that come into the office at that point have not thought about themselves in six weeks or more. And, um, and oftentimes, uh, you know, making small, just kind of reorienting parents to the fact that the best you is the you that gets, that takes care of yourself, at least in some capacity and takes care of some of the needs. And that may be in the form of, um, you know, switching off with your partner so that each of you can get in a 30 minute exercise or run or whatever it is you like to do to stay physically fit a couple times a week. It doesn't even have to be every day, just a couple times a week. I often give my patients homework at that visit um, to spend an hour with their partner, just one hour per week without a baby. And for a lot of people, that's, I mean, that's hard to do. But you just find somebody, a babysitter, you find somebody you trust, you find a family member to take your baby for at least an hour every week so that the parents can go out to dinner, have adult conversation without any interruptions, be able to reconnect so that you can go back to taking care of your baby as a team Mm -hmm. and restored, Um, just like those mini naps are restorative going to a movie or going out to dinner or just having a, a, just going outside the house to do some activity for an hour a week is, is restorative to your psyche. Of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when is a good time to start having these conversations for your, for you with your patients or, or with your patients with couples like who are preparing, I guess Mm -hmm. like what, when do you think is the right time to start thinking about this first handful of months and then, also, what what is the content that you want people to think about? Yeah, before birth. Yeah, before the birth and the pregnancy is the best time to start having those conversations. And I think we do, at least in my practice, I think we do have those conversations, but um, they may not always be direct like that. It's hard to tell somebody who has a lot of anxieties about what the labor is going to be like, what the birth is going to be like, to skip over that and talk about what's going to happen the few weeks after birth. Um, but I start preparing my, my patients a few, at least a few weeks before talking about, um, actually bringing up most of the time in the setting of, um, patients who are anxious about, well, when is this going to happen? What's my cervix like? The, the waiting, the, you know, the pregnancy flies by until the last like two, three, four weeks of, of pregnancy. And then time just stands still as you're waiting for labor to ensue or waiting for your baby to come. And uh, that's a really difficult time for a lot of people, especially I have a lot of patients that are professionals that are used to being super busy, having things that take a little bit of time off of work and they don't know what to do with themselves. And I, I tell my patients and their partners when they bring them, this is your time to be together because your, your family is going to be different in a few weeks or a few days, depending on the case. 
Um, this is your time to go see a show, go out to a movie, um, you know, go to the SF MoMA that you haven't been to to see some exhibit you really wanted to see. Spend time to reconnect together to build your relationship so that you can be an effective team when your baby comes. And because your attention is going to shift the focus once your baby comes. Um, and as an added benefit in that last leg of pregnancy, um, you know how um, things sort of work out in the way they do. I, I joke around with my patients that it's win-win because, you know, if you make plans and you, for example, buy tickets to go see Hamlet or the opera, you know, maybe you'll go into labor. It's win-win. Then you don't have to wait anymore. <laughs> so, because isn't that how that happens? When you have plans, things happen that you didn't want to have happen at that moment. So, yes. Well, and I have to add, because this is our podcast and this is what it's about, that, you know, it's that stage at which many times, um, uh, you know, because the focus has been so much on pregnancy and birth, that if they have a moment, and I'm around, <laughs> you know, I want to always ask the question, you know, what have you been thinking about in terms of the kind of support you're going to have for yourselves in the first two to six weeks postpartum? Mm -hmm. You know, do you have family members who are really up to speed on the kind of care you're going to need? Um, if not, uh, you know, have you considered a postpartum doula? You know, do you have friends who are knowledgeable enough to really give you good day-to-day -day care in those first weeks. So, um, you know, it's never too late to be thinking about, you know, this sort of recovery period. It is a recovery period. If they've broken their legs, they'd have to go home and, you know, have some sort of support around themselves. Um, the good news is you're not breaking anything, <laughs> but you might still need a kind of um, support to around the project of getting getting to the next developmental phase. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. In the same way that we're giving people permission to pick up the phone and call their doctor or call their midwife, whomever it might be, because they're feeling like they're low and they can't get back up or their stitches hurt more than they started out with the physical things and the emotional things, I wonder if it's a good idea to start planting those seeds very early that like, Hey, be open with your partner, share how you're feeling. Um, tell the, tell the partner, Hey, you know, mom might be going down. Why don't you look out for these things and be her supporter and make, she might be afraid to tell you how she's feeling and like, be ready for that because it sounds like this disconnect is pretty common between partners in particular. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's an, awesome thing to start like anticipating beforehand rather than kind of do it's much harder to deal with it later. Yeah. I think when it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I, I do have those conversations with patients in the hospital after they've given birth now, uh, not to do too much personal sharing, but, uh, but your partner was very present during our visits, but that's not always the case. And so sometimes I don't even, uh, there have been cases where I don't even meet the partner until, the patients in labor are ready to deliver. Um, I would say those are fewer and far between, but it does happen. And, you know, sometimes partners come for a few visits, but not every single one. And so you see them intermittently. Um, but most of the time, 
the partners are there. Thankfully, the partners are there in the hospital with them either during the labor and uh, certainly after the child's born. Um, and so for me, that's logistically sometimes the best time to have those kind of conversations. And, and I do, I talk to the patient about here's what you need to look out for and, um, and uh, involve the partner in those conversations as well. Um, so that um, everyone's sort of on the same page. And I have had partners actually call me. I did have one patient one time that was having a really hard time and her partner called me and said, listen, I know that, um, you know, I think that she's having more difficulty that she's letting on. What do you think I should do? And, um, and so I gave him advice about what to do and um, things uh, were much better after that. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's empowering the partner too, like you said, to look out for those signs and to be an advocate for their own family. Yeah. Wow. And to, to have that awareness, um, it's, it just seems that it sounds so protective and loving mm-hmm. and act like that. It's not like stepping on anyone's toes. Like it's awesome that someone felt empowered to do that. Right. What did you tell him? Well, in, in that particular case, it was a, a patient who it sounded like had a, had postpartum depression. And I asked him if it was possible for him to bring her into the office. Um, um, and if he felt comfortable having that conversation, because at that point, I think he sort of didn't know how to broach the subject without, he, I don't know, I think he was anticipating maybe that she would be defensive or upset. Um, and so I asked him, are you comfortable having that conversation? And and he was, and so he brought her in. And uh, and then we all talked together. So in actually in this office here, we sat down together and he relayed his concerns and um, with her, with my patient present. And then, um, and then I asked him to step out and I talked alone with the patient and sort of heard how she was feeling, how she was doing, how she felt about what her partner had said and whether, you know, how she felt, whether that was accurate or not, or how, you know, got her side of the story, so to speak. And it was good because then it felt like, um, a team approach, uh, involving the family, the partner, um, with the patient's permission was, was the best way to give her supportive care in that particular instance. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's a great story. Yeah. And they're, they're very sweet. I, uh, they changed insurance, so I haven't seen them for a long time, <laughs> oh, but, um, yeah. but they text me pictures sometimes of their kid. I think their kid's probably a few years old now. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of questions on my mind. Uh, and one of them is how you think your practice differs if, if it does, if, I mean, if you think it does from like other typical practices. Yeah. I, I think it, there's a lot of factors that kind of play into the answer to that question. Um, for, like I mentioned, we're a very small private practice. So, um, the feel in our practice may be a little bit different than in other practices. Um, in that, um, we're pretty, I mean, we're always accessible and we pretty much deliver, I would say at least 95 to 99% of the babies that we take care of. We deliver them ourselves. Um, so in that way, it's, it's a little bit more intimate maybe in our practice. Um, that's not to say that you can't have a very strong and uh, meaningful relationship with OBGYNs and other practices. And, and in fact, I'm sure you can. 
Um, but um, that's, I think, how I see our practice as being a little bit different is that we're, um, we have the capability because we're so small and there's just two, pro- uh, two providers in our practice with a nurse practitioner. We sort of know all our patients. Yeah. And I think the story you just told made me want to ask that because I think, and I don't know if it's necessarily a philosophy, but yeah, that approach of, of intimacy comes across really clearly. I mean, you're acting not so much as a counselor with that person, but you're really um, supporting them in such a major way through like a challenging time, physically, emotionally, all of it. And you, you were personally the one who was with her before, during, after her birth, like all of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would, I would also add that I think the most important for people who are either thinking about finding a UN or thinking about getting pregnant or you know, wherever you are in your life, um, I think the most important thing is to find uh, a doctor that you feel connected to and that you feel you, you can trust. Uh, patients tell me things that they've never told anyone else in their lives. And I think that that that's the only way, really, that I can be an effective provider. I'm here to advocate for my patients. I'm here to, um, you know, facilitate uh, healthy choices in their lives. I'm here to treat problems as they arise. Um, I'm 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 a partner in your health. I'm not going to stand here or sit here and dictate this is what you should do. I'm going to give you my opinion based on what. Uh, what the circumstances are and uh, based on what I know. And I'm the first one to say, I don't know everything. There are things that I don't know, but I'm happy to work with you if this is something that I haven't dealt with before or if this is, um, or if somebody's not responding to a treatment in a way that I expected. Um, and that's, that's the partnership part of the relationship I have with patients, but it only comes, uh, it only happens that way because patients trust me. And because I can trust patients to be honest with me too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, something that comes up very frequently is questions about episiotomies. That's almost always yeah. on birth plans. And I find that very interesting um, because the standard of care at this point for OBGYN is not to do episiotomies, but for some reason, women are very fearful of them. Oh, and yeah. so they that's something that's like discussed and I anticipate discussed outside among women a lot um, when they're take, you know, putting together their birth plans. Um, so I find that to be very interesting that um, that comes up not infrequently. And, and then we have a discussion about it. So if somebody brings up something that um, I'm not comfortable with or, um, is against hospital policy or, um, for whatever reason for that particular person, I think that that's not an acceptable or recommended way to do it. Uh, I just tell the patient, I'm honest. I just tell them, listen, you know, I know this is real, this is important to you. Here's why I think we should do it a little bit differently. And, um, I haven't had any problems with that because again, this is a partnership. And hopefully by the time we're talking about birth plans and labor and all that stuff, we should have had a very strong partnership at that point in the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Are there things that you think absolutely need to be on a birth plan? The answer I give all my patients is if there's something that you feel is important to you, that's what you put on your birth plan. Mm-hmm. And it's really a conversation that it's a conversation starter for you and me, for your doctor and, um, and yourself. 
regarding what you would like your app birth to look like. Um, I've had patients that have wanted to not have any noise in the room. I've had other patients that wanted to have music. Uh, I've had other patients that, um, and you can probably speak to all kinds of things, you know, that have, you know, that dance during labor. I have patients that have wanted to um, uh, do different kinds of, it doesn't really matter to me. As long as mom and baby are healthy and safe during the, the labor and the delivery process, none of that matters to me. It ma- what I want patients to do is to put down on paper what matters to them so that we can talk about how we can facilitate that. That's what the birth plan is to me. It's just like, it's a conversation starter so that we can all know what, what we would like to have happen. So would you like to talk to us about working with um, alternative families? Sure. Um, I think it's uh, one of the exciting parts about being an obstetrician in San Francisco is that there's so many different types of families uh, that come through our practice and, um, and of course, all of them are wonderful in their own unique way. Um, we are very, um, supportive of, um, and welcoming of alternative or which, whatever families, um, there are many ways to have a family. And I think, um, um, not just, uh, LGBT patients, but also, uh, single, single women who haven't found the right partner who have decided that it's an important part of their life that they want to have a child. Um, I have a few patients, uh, who are interested in that. And, um, I think it's, it's really exciting to take care of patients. And, um, what we do typically is have patients come in and talk about what their individual needs are. And, uh, we facilitate that. In terms of specifically LGBT, um, I primarily see women here, uh, uh, either bisexual or lesbian women um, who have female partners and are interested in starting a family. And we do have pretty strong partnerships in the community with um, helping women connect women with services, whether it's insemination or finding a sperm donor or if they have a known donor helping connect uh, with services, both medical and legal services, to make sure everything's in place uh, for conception. Um, and then, of course, taking care of patients uh, during the pregnancy. Do you see something I saw sort of a wave up in my career here in San Francisco, and I don't find I'm involved with that much these days, but um, two, two kind of um, aspects one was open adoption, and the other was and surrogacy. Mm-hmm. So, um, for instance, I've had several gay male couples who are receiving a baby into their family from a surrogate mm-hmm. who they've hired, and they want to be present for the birth, and then they also want postpartum care. They, mm-hmm. you know, they want to welcome the baby, but they need through that support of somebody who knows what babies are all about and how they're going to be affected. Um, and then I've also, of course, been involved in families who've, you know, have a relinquishing mom that they're actually openly working with to receive their baby from. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, we've uh, definitely have had taken care of patients who are acting as surrogates for, other couples, whether it's LGBT couples or, um, 
also um, heterosexual couples that have infertility issues. Um, and uh, we've taken care of patients and uh, delivered children in that way. Um, we've also taken care of women who um, maybe found out late in the pregnancy that they were pregnant unexpectedly or had no plans for termination and um, decided to put a baby up for adoption. And so we've supported women through that journey as well um, and helped connect them with adoption services. Um, and it's a, it's a different kind of support that you give somebody who's a surrogate or who is planning to give their baby up for adoption. Uh, because, of course, uh, we always want to be um, cognizant of the baby's health and the baby's needs, uh, but uh, the mom's needs are not so much tied to the pregnancy, which is much different than taking care of a woman who is going to be taking home their baby. Um, so it's much different. And the support after birth is much different too. Um, the, um, because those uh, women are going home without a baby after they have carried, uh, hopefully carried their child to term and um, had a safe delivery. Um, so they're still in that recovery process that we were talking about. And, uh, but without the added, uh, without the addition of having a child, um, to show for it. Um, and it also brings up other points, uh, for people who are acting as surrogates, it's more of a, uh, deliberate decision that they make to carry a child. And there are many different reasons, reasons why women act as surrogates. Um, and so oftentimes they have support from their family, from their friends, from their partners, um, from other people in the community. Um, and uh, many times, uh, at least in my experience, the surrogates I've taken care of have actually had ongoing communication with their, um, with their uh, parents that, um, have taken the child home. Um, and so that, um, I think that is much different than a woman who has a closed adoption and gives her baby up and doesn't have any more connection. Um, so, uh, the health needs and sort of the, um, uh, support needed is, is, is different. Yeah. And I typically see those women, um, the patients who serve as surrogates and patients who, um, end up, uh, giving their babies for adoption. I see them much sooner actually as a, as a standard, um, before the six week visit for that reason, uh, because anticipating that they may have other, other needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. All the ways of becoming families. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's very it's an it's an exciting um it's an exciting time uh because we're seeing so many different permutations and um I also do fertility in my practice and help work up patients that have difficulty conceiving and a lot of times by the time they reach my office Patients have been trying for months to years to get pregnant, have already made the decision in their mind that they want a baby and have found out that it's much more challenging for them to achieve that goal than they thought and are already super frustrated by the time they come to my office um, and getting sometimes impatient because, you know, it, everyone around them is getting pregnant without even trying, right? <laughs> um, so, um, you know, it's... It's, um, what I tell, um, 
my patients, especially patients who have difficulties with fertility, is that there are many ways to make a family. And you want to envision what your family will be like, like having a baby in your house or having a child that you nurture and grow and teach. Um, you know, but how you get from point A to point to point B, that may not even that may not matter. Um, at the end of the day, for some people it does, but, um, what I like to, um, talk to patients about is, is that at the end of the day, you get to reach that end point and take care of a, build your family and take care of a child. And sometimes it doesn't turn out the way the path to that, um, end goal doesn't turn out the way that you expected or anticipated, uh, but it still doesn't, um, diminish the, the returns, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's true. I try to remind clients like the childbearing year might not be a pregnancy year, right? It could be any number of years even before that baby arrives. So no matter how that baby arrives, there's kind of a sacred journey involved and all the elements of that journey have significance and, um, Being able to s- step away and be, you know, invoke your inner witness for your journey can sometimes really help you see it as every bit as valuable, every bit as meaningful, every bit as uh, interesting and mysterious as the thing that you thought you wanted, which might have been in our conversation, that pregnancy, right? Like women are often understandably very attached just viscerally even really to the idea that they could have a pregnancy that, you know, growing a baby inside them is something they just can't miss out on. Um, and many do, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of their sacred journey that they do. Um, That's incredibly profound. I think we have a much easier time looking back on our lives and saying, you know, I don't know if I would have changed, you know, I would have preferred at the time that I didn't go through those struggles, but I'm really glad that I did because it made me the person that I am today. It's much harder for a a woman to look back on their um, childbearing years trying to get pregnant with that same sort of philosophy. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's a really wonderful thing to remind patients that you were able to remind patients of that. Well, given everything you've experienced and seen in the world of giving birth and babies, Are there any thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with as we wrap up? I would say that I would just reiterate sort of what we talked about a little bit earlier, that um, having a supportive partnership, a supportive community is really important uh, going into the last few months and uh, weeks of of the pregnancy and certainly most importantly after the pregnancy when the new baby's there. Um, that it's important to reach out to your doctor and not be afraid to admit when you need extra help, um, either to your partner, to your family, or to your doctor, uh, because we're all here and in, interested in your well-being. And we know that um, that if mom's taken care of, the rest of the family is taken care of. So, and that means physically, mentally, emotionally, in every capacity. 
Um, and so finding ways to support mom during this period is really beneficial for everybody. Great. Thank you. And, and I'll just add to that. Moms do need help. Mm-hmm. It's not extra. They need help. <laughs> Hardest job yeah. in the world. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband, Ben, daughter, Penelope, and baby girl, Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Bye for now. Hello again. Bicycle man, I know you're doing all that you can. I wrote the song, simple and true. I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you. You got your wheels, you got your gears. You ride around town without any fear You got your pedals, you got your brakes You always wear your helmet for safety's sake